0: According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We are here for the purpose of growth. Turn to Matthew chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9 this morning. deal with episode 9 in the Galilean ministry. Last week we dealt with episode 8, the healing of the leper. Today is the healing of the paralytic. Next week we'll look at the call of Matthew. These uh, next several episodes I anticipate going fairly rapidly. And uh, rather than measure them in weeks per episode, we'll, we might even start measuring episodes per week. Who knows? We'll see what uh, the Lord has for us there. All right, the Lord healed a number of paralytics, but this is the most noteworthy, the famous one, the one that you talk about when you talk about the paralytic healed, that is the fellow that they lowered through the roof to get down in there because uh, the place was so packed out they couldn't get him through the door. Before we begin, let's take time for silent prayer to prepare our hearts for receiving truth and asking the Father to bless our study. Shall we pray? My Father, we do come humbly before your throne of grace this morning, and we thank you for the privilege of studying your word. We ask for your hand of blessing upon us, Father, for distractions to be set aside, and we ask for eyes to see, ears to hear, and a heart to understand. We pray that the message this morning would not be impaired or detracted in any way by any uh, sickness or human weakness on the part of the speaker, on the part of the hearers. We just pray that God the Holy Spirit would manifest his faithfulness yet again in in guiding us into the truth. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, Matthew chapter 9. Parallel account in Mark chapter 2 and in Luke chapter 5. The, um, As I said, this episode is fairly well known. I wouldn't go so far as to say it even unbelievers have heard about it they like the feeding of the 5,000 or walking on water there are some chapters in Christ's life that are so proverbial that even uh, even unbelievers at least have heard of the subject before Uh, but this one is uh, is up there Um, this man is paralyzed and we'll look at that and it's uh, the popularity has now uh, grown to the point as well as the scrutiny has grown to the point where this man can't even get in there. And so his uh, friends don't let details slow them down any. They find a way. When you have positive volition, when you uh, want to exercise faith to get to Christ, then uh, nothing is going to stop you. And there's there's a lot of uh, uh, there's a lot of room to really preach this uh, this chapter in a number of different ways. But it certainly is pretty vivid. Um, as far as that goes. Let's just simply read through the three narratives. They're all most identical, the three of them. There are some differences. So let's read Matthew, and then we'll go to Mark and then Luke. Matthew 9, 1 through 8. And uh, don't worry about the context of getting into a boat. We're just going to pick it up with um, where we are. Jesus crossed over the sea and came to his own city. Notice how Capernaum is identified as his own city. And they brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed, seeing their faith. Jesus said to the paralytic, take courage, son, your sins are forgiven. And some of the scribes said to themselves, this fellow blasphemes. I don't know that we've actually encountered scribes up to this point. I know we've encountered Pharisees, at least during the Baptist ministry. Uh, this may, in fact, be the first reference to scribes so far as we've reached it uh, chronologically. But uh, some of the scribes said to themselves, This fellow blasphemes. And Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why are you thinking evil in your hearts? Which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Get up and walk. But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Then he said to the paralytic, Get up, pick up your bed, and go home. And he got up, went home. But when the crowd saw this, they were awestruck and glorified God, who had given such authority to men. All right, that's Matthew's account. It is the shortest of the accounts that we're looking at. It makes no reference to the fact that they were bringing him in through the roof and uh, other such things. Let's go over to Mark now. Mark chapter 2. Get a little bit more of the detail. Remember, as chapter 1 comes to a close... Um, News about him was spreading to such an extent that Jesus could no longer publicly enter a city. In other words, if he was going to go into a city, he had to do so at night or in disguise or somehow not letting people know who he was. Uh, But he stayed out in unpopulated areas and they were coming to him from everywhere. So when he had come back to Capernaum, we assume it was in the middle of the night or somehow covered up or hidden away that uh, several days afterward, it was heard that he was at home. And uh, news got out that, oh, he's back, that the, tour, uh, the, the previous tour of Galilee had come to a close. He's in between tours. He's taking a break, that kind of thing. And uh, he's trying to take a couple of days off, trying to hide, but they uh, figure out that he's there. Notice also in Matthew, Capernaum was called his own city. Here in Mark, uh, it says that this is his home. He was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no longer room, not even near the door. And he was speaking the word to them. So it's standing room only and the place is packed out. And they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And being unable to get to him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had dug an opening, they let down the pallet on which the paralytic was lying. And Jesus, seeing their faith, said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Again, the issue goes from healing to forgiveness, just like that. But some of the scribes were sitting there, there's the scribes again, and reasoning in their hearts. Why does this man speak that way? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? It's a tremendous question. And if they would answer their own question then with some legitimacy, then they would come to the recognition of the deity of Jesus Christ. We'll talk about that. Verse 8 immediately Jesus, aware in his spirit that they were reasoning that way within themselves, said to them, "Why are you reasoning about these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and pick up your pallet and walk?" But so that you may know that the Son of man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, "I say to you, get up, pick up your pallet and go home." And he got up and immediately picked up the pallet and went out in the sight of everyone, so that they were all amazed and were glorifying God, saying, We have never seen anything like this. Alright, then the account in Luke. Where's fairly similar to Matthew's reckoning, although we'll get a little bit more of the medical terminology as you might anticipate. We also get the reference to the Pharisees. We've had scribes mentioned both in Matthew and in Luke. I mean, Matthew and Mark, but now in Luke, we actually get the reference to the Pharisees. And some of these scribes are actually a part of the Pharisee faction of the uh, politics of the day. Luke chapter 5. You got the leper that's cleansed in verses 12 through 16. Again, the fame is gathering around. And the news, it says in verse 15, was spreading even farther, and large crowds were gathering to hear him and to be healed of their sicknesses. But Jesus himself would often slip away to the wilderness and pray. As the fame was growing, as the popularity was growing, as the temptations to get full of himself were growing, he realized that the priority was actually uh, what he needed to do was keep himself humble by keeping himself in prayer. Then one day he was teaching, and there were some Pharisees and teachers of the law sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. And now you understand why it was so crowded in that house and why the locals from Capernaum were having a hard time getting in because these crowds actually had gathered from all over the place. And uh, typical Pharisee approach. They have to have the best seats. They have to sit up front, front and center, and all the rest. And uh, they've got the place so packed out, this poor guy with the sickness can't even get in there. And... Uh, Anyway, back to verse 17. Uh, he was teaching, and there were some Pharisees and teachers of the law sitting there, who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem, and the power of the Lord was present for him to perform healing. And some men were carrying on a bed a man who was paralyzed, and they were trying to bring him in and to set him down in front of him. But not finding any way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down through the tiles with his stretcher into the middle of the crowd in front of Jesus. Seeing their faith, he said, friend, your sins are forgiven you. The scribes and the Pharisees began reasoning. Now, there's the reference to the scribes, and we'll talk about that. Uh, And the Pharisees began reasoning, saying, who is this man who speaks blasphemies, who can forgive sins but God alone? Once again, they're almost there. And if they would bother to answer their own question without their prejudice, then uh, they would come to the inescapable conclusion that he is, in fact, claiming that very deity. But Jesus, aware of their reasonings, answered and said to them, Why are you reasoning in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins have been forgiven you, or to say, get up and walk. But so as you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, get up and pick up your stretcher and go home. Immediately he got up before them and picked up uh, what he had been lying on and went home glorifying God. They were all struck with astonishment and began glorifying God, and they were filled with fear saying, we have seen remarkable things today. All right, there are the three accounts. Now, I will probably spend most of the time going through these notes. Man, we'll bounce back and forth. I guess we'll spend most of the time in Matthew, so we can turn back to the Matthew 9, and then we'll supplement, because it's the shortest, and then we'll supplement with the added details from Mark and Luke. All right. All right. First of all, we recognize the itinerant nature of the Lord's travels under point one. Capernaum became the base from which the Galilean tours would go forth. We studied a couple of weeks ago how uh, they wanted to keep him local. In other words, they didn't want Capernaum to be a base. They wanted Capernaum to be uh, a centerpiece. They wanted to keep him there in Capernaum. They wanted the uh, the whole attitude of you come to us and we'll set up a headquarters here kind of approach. Um, not really that different from the Old Testament approach with, hey, the Lord's worship is here in Jerusalem, and if you want to find out about the Lord, you've got to come to us. See, the uh, the emphasis among the Jews, at least those who even cared to witness to, to Gentiles, was you come to us, and when you get here to Jerusalem, we'll tell you what it's all about. The idea of going forth with good news, the idea of going forth as evangelists was not present in Old Testament times, at least as a priority for the Jewish people. Generally speaking, the only reason they went forth was when the Lord dispersed them and made them go forth into captivity throughout the uh, throughout the Gentile nations. And so the, kind of this mindset is here as well. Hey, here's the Lord. Let's get him set up. Let's build him a temple. Uh, Peter, later on, will come across these similar ideas. Hey, let's build a tabernacle for Jesus, a tabernacle for Moses, a tabernacle for Elisha. We'll set up this this Mecca-type place. We'll set up this... This place here where pilgrims can come in and come to us. And uh, no, the pattern here is going to be different. We'll set up a headquarters. We'll set up a base of operations. But that's only for short times to rest up, to resupply, to reprovision, and then to go forth again. See. And uh, very much what we're observing here, the pattern of the Lord is going to become the pattern of the apostles. Uh, we Without a doubt, you can see Paul following that pattern in the book of Acts. And I think it's pretty clear that all of the apostles followed a similar pattern where they would set up a, a base of operations and then launch forth from there on their various missionary travels. And so that's what we observe here. Uh, Capernaum became the base from which the Galilean tours would go forth. And I hope that we can keep this as our... Mindset with respect to Austin Bible Church is simply a base from which endeavors can go forth. In other words, we're not setting ourselves up as some kind of temple or shrine or you come to us kind of thing, but we're a base from which we can go out, see, where, uh, A child evangelism ministry might spring forth or a a jail ministry might spring forth or a hospital ministry or a nursing home ministry or planning a a helping a church get started in Horseshoe Bay or things like this where we're a base of operations but our outreach is indeed extended outward rather than expecting that, well, you know, if they're positive to doctrine, they'll come here kind of approach, all right? And so we observe it here. Again, in Matthew 9 1, it's called his own city. And in Mark 2 1, it says that he was at home. So these were a short period of time in which he could rest up, get, uh, regain some strength, regain some provisions, some supplies. Uh, travel in the ancient world was something, and we're, it's kind of. Alien to us because we're just accustomed to hopping in our car and driving wherever we want to go. But a, tra- uh, you know, a trip of 20 miles, a trip of 25 miles was a significant endeavor which required food to be packed. It required provisions and, and, uh, and so forth. I recommend um, Ramsey. Uh, I think it was Ramsey, wrote a great book on the travels of the Apostle Paul and, and uh, tremendous But Coney Barren House, and likewise, tremendous book that details, in some cases, just the practical nature of what does it take to walk from Philippi to Thessalonica, for example, and why the Roman roads were such a blessing, because without those, you know, you could easily double or triple the travel time between particular cities. So we observe that in the first point. And I hope this can become a pattern for us as well, that we're here. The local church, according to Ephesians 4, is for the equipping of the saints for the work of service. And that work of service is reaching out as ambassadors to this lost and dying world. Now, secondly, with the larger crowds and greater fame came increased scrutiny. With the larger crowds and greater fame came increased scrutiny. I use the word scrutiny because the the greater focus of attention on the part of the scribes and the Pharisees uh, is not necessarily one of positive volition. In fact, every indication is that it's one of negative volition. That these guys are checking them out because of their own. Concerns, their own fears. And they may not be totally uh, exploded into the surface at this point, but it will very quickly. See, we're already approaching the second Passover. So he's been in the ministry now for just over a year since his baptism. And he's growing at, he's, uh, uh, he's drawing, attracting more and more scrutiny by the part of these religious leaders, the very same leaders that in two more years are going to be crucifying him. All right? So we observe it in Mark 2.2. We also observe it in Luke 5.17. We have the reference to the Pharisees, the reference to the scribes. And then Luke, I think, does the best at defining the, them as the teachers of the law. So I had intended to put vocabulary in here, but I think we've already covered Pharisees in previous classes. Some point A, the Pharisees' previous scrutiny prompted the Galilean ministry in the first place. If you remember back from John chapter 4, the reason why they even went back to, uh, to Galilee was because John the Baptist had been arrested because the conflict was increasing there in the Judean region by the River Jordan and in the outskirts of Jerusalem. And so with John the Baptist arrested, being put into prison, uh, we read about it here in John 4.1 that, uh, that they, headed, they, they got out of there. All right? It says, therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John. See, the scrutiny. They were checking him out. Although Jesus himself was not baptizing, but his disciples were. He left Judea and went away again into Galilee. So, not content merely with having driven him out of Jerusalem, driven him out of Judea. He's had a year now where he's traveled around Galilee. But see, the problem is, is that he's gathering more and more attention. There's more and more crowds following after him. There's more and more buzz, more conversation, more excitement. Who is this? Could this be the Christ? See, and the Pharisees now have to go and, you know, he's, he's not coming to them anymore. So now they have to go to him and try to check out his claims even more. All with a very critical eye, all with a very disapproving eye. See, now we could, on the one hand, Give them the benefit of the doubt. And maybe we should, since it's not fair for us with our hindsight to be able to read the end of the Gospels and know these are the jerks that are going to crucify them, right? So let's give them the benefit of the doubt and say, well, maybe they're just being fair maybe they're just they they're, they want to observe and make sure it 's not a false Christ they want to make sure that this is the Christ they, they want to you know protect the people from being led astray by a false christ that's that 's legitimate that 's bona fide but we realize very quickly that 's not what they 're concerned about at all that even when they understand like Nicodemus admitted that you know the miracles were undeniable that he was sent from God as a teacher because the miracles were undeniable that 's John chapter three so right away i don 't think there's any doubt to give them the benefit of uh, I think all doubt has been removed, and their uh, their hypocrisy has been unmasked. They are indeed serving the adversary, and every uh, action they take reflects that. We'll see some of that today. John chapter 3 and verse 2, this uh, Nicodemus, the Pharisee ruler of the Jews, said, Rabbi, we, plural, we Pharisees, know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with them. So there's, there's, no, there's no more doubt to give them the benefit of. They are hostile to him even though he is from God. And we'll start to see some of those reasons why. They will start to grow. They will start to build. Now I didn't re-give you vocabulary on Pharisees. If you want to look it up. I don't mind looking it up here this morning from Luke 5.17. Um, it is a good word study to do uh, coming not necessarily from the Greek, but from the, the Hebrew word behind, the pharaz in the Hebrew. Um, get a Greek text up here, too. The uh, Pharisees are the separated ones, and uh, not content merely to be separated from the godless Gentiles, they were separated even from their other Jews, who they felt were too worldly, that they were even a step beyond Jewish separation from godless Gentiles. They were separated from those uh, of their own Jews, they didn't quite measure up. See, all right. So Luke five and verse seventeen, you got Pharisee right here, and I'll give you a Strong's number so you can look up Pharisee here in a moment. And um, just because I know a lot of you folks enjoy doing the uh, the word studies, Pharisee, number fifty three thirty, is the Strong's. Concordance number it does come from the Hebrew rather than the actual Greek meaning separated ones, the ones that hold themselves off at a distance, and they and don 't get me wrong, we should be separate from idolatry we should hold our keep ourselves from idolatry we should flee from every appearance or every form of evil. there is a principle for, for separation that is applicable in the church age, but there is also an extreme where you go beyond what that is intended where you uh, have totally removed yourself from any ambassadorship fund. Function, when you've totally separated yourself from any witnessing opportunity because you have so insulated yourself from any unbeliever, from any anything at all, where you can't even have a witness anymore. You go into a hermit mode or into a monk mode or some kind of uh, uh, a hermit in a monastery somewhere and have forgotten that our commission is to go forth in this lost and dying world. So those are the Pharisees. It then goes on to say these teachers of the law... Teachers of the law in verse 17. And those are equated with the scribes from verse 21. And Luke, you remember, is a Gentile. And Luke is writing to a Gentile. And so some of these terms that uh, may not be as clear to a Gentile audience, Luke does him a favor. He does uh, the favor of explaining what some of those terms were. And so, uh, you know, a Gentile might be reading this and say, well, what's a scribe? What's this all about? And Luke has just defined it as a teacher of the law. So that his Gentile reader here. Theophilus will understand who these critics are, who these people are that are being uh, scrutinous of the Lord and His ministry. Teachers of the law. Keeping in mind that much of the Jewish uh, worship changed. With their captivity in Babylon, with their temple destroyed, they could no longer be bringing their animal sacrifices. A lot of their uh, previous ritual was no longer applicable. And then for the 70 years of their captivity, they couldn't observe the various sacrifices they were commanded to the Day of Atonement and all the rest. Their temple was gone. And so what happened then, what took its place then was a growing um, focus on the text themselves, on the scriptures. See, Bible study, if you will. And there's nothing necessarily wrong with that. That's a good thing. They should have been focusing on their text. But see, what started to happen then was that they started to develop this dependence upon these experts, upon these teachers, upon these scribes. In fact, when more and more, when Hebrew fell into disuse, when he came into more and more with a common man on the street, didn't even read Hebrew anymore. All he was speaking Aramaic. He was reading Aramaic. They became more and more dependent upon these scribes to read their scriptures for them to tell them what it means. See and uh, so by the time they get back into the land and under uh, Ezra and Nehemiah and they get a new temple built and they're back up and running at least on the sacrificial end of things uh the the rise of the synagogues then became really where their their worship was focused where they could come together for Bible study they could come together to learn God's word and so at least in its origins, it's an admirable thing, and we would have no dispute with it. You want to be focused on the text. But the problem was, as those who were in charge, those who, who uh, were accountable for copying these manuscripts and preserving them and, and uh, passing them on to the next generation and so forth, uh, they became more and more involved in the political power. And that is where it, it, it turned bad, in between the Old Testament and the New Testament. I think even when we gave the background on the Pharisees too, I expressed that in their in the early days the Pharisees were extraordinary. They were they were uh, great patriots. They were men of tremendous courage. They were uh, uh, men of, of, of uh, strong biblical convictions. They recognized that the the uh, Maccabean uh, throne was was a fraud. They realized that the, that they were Levites and had no business on a throne, that the throne belonged to the tribe of, of Judah, to the sons of David, and that Judas Maccabeus and all of his brothers, and the uh, I mean, they were great in, in terms of fighting the Greeks and gaining their independence, but they had no business trying to be priest kings. And uh, the Pharisees were very... Uh, uh, they, they wrote about it. They spoke about it. They spilled blood over it. They were very ferocious in their defense of the Scriptures. So early on... There was uh, much to be uh, admired with respect to the Pharisees, not by this time. By this time, they were so entrenched in their own power that uh, they would do anything, including murder, to uh, to hold on to that power. So these teachers of the law are quite interesting. And it's remarkable the way that Jewish culture started to mirror other cultures, such as the Egyptians, such as the Babylonians, the Assyrians, and so forth, where in all of these other cases, think about the Egyptian priests and their hieroglyphics, their secret writings, and, and your average Egyptian on the street didn't know what any of that was about. They just trusted the the scribes. They were the ones who were literate. They were the ones who knew how to read and write and could interpret these hieroglyphics or these secret writings and so forth. And uh, and in much the same way, the scribes, uh, the Pharisees, held that kind of power over the Jewish people. And by the way, it's not unique to the ancient world. It continues on in, even in modern times in uh, throughout the Middle Ages. Of course, uh, the Roman church did the same thing by restricting the scriptures to the Latin where you had to go to the priest. You had to go to the scholar because the, the average guy on the street didn't know Latin. And so, you know, just trust us. We'll tell you what it says. We'll tell you what to do. And uh, it's no different. So here we have it now. They uh, this hostility is going to grow. It's going to fester and it's going to grow and it's only going to get worse as his popularity increases. All right. And that should uh, that should become obvious as well. Point three, the paralytic and his friends demonstrated their faith in Jesus by their willingness to do whatever necessary to come to Jesus. The paralytic and his friends demonstrated their faith in Jesus by their willingness to do whatever necessary to come to come to Jesus. And that means if it means we've got to go through a roof, then we've got to go through a roof. Whatever it takes. And that is a demonstration of faith. And the Lord admitted that. The Lord observed that. In fact, the word pistis, the word faith, occurs in all three gospel accounts as being the item that Jesus Christ took note of. Matthew 9.2, Mark 2.5, Luke 5.20. In all three gospel accounts, it was the faith being expressed that was observed. It's interesting that the, the we don't have the word faith associated with these crowds of Pharisees and scribes and others, but we do have faith associated with this paralytic and his friends bringing him in. All right, the paralytic and his friends. Now, this gets preached different ways, and people look at this and say, "See, there's many ways, and there's not just one way, right?" You're so narrow-minded, you're, you're just a one-way-only kind of guy. Like, if you're not going through your door, that's the only way in. Well, look at this scripture here, smarty pants. There's other ways. You don't have to go through the door. You can go through the roof if you want to. See, the problem is they've lost sight of the metaphor right from the very beginning. Because whether you go through the door, through the roof, through the window, whatever you do, you dig a tunnel, I don't care, whatever they're doing, they're still getting to Christ. All right? So the end result is, is that if you don't come to Christ... You're not going to the Father, saying it is the exclusive way, truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but through me. Sure, there might be a thousand different ways to get to Christ. But the point is, is that you've got to get to Christ. And through Christ, then you come to the Father. So we still have an exclusive uh, gospel because the Bible still proclaims an exclusive gospel. And this text can't be used to support, well, there's many paths, there's many ways. You know, you might you do the door, I might do the window, this other guy might go through the roof. See, no, that's not what this text is saying. Because whatever route you go, you're still getting to Christ in the end. All right. And I would put forth that. The uh, the mechanisms that the Lord uses to bring somebody to Christ are wide and varied. There will be any number of circumstances because yeah, and the the Lord knows exactly what it's going to take to bring any particular person to that point of acceptance. To what's going what's to take to break the pride? What is it going to take to to uh, you know in terms of a soul dissatisfaction? To hunger after something righteousness. See. So, yeah, I would, I would agree, certainly. There's myriads there's of ways that people can come to Christ, but coming to Christ is the only way for salvation. All three of these passages reference uh, faith. Uh, the paralytic, we don't even know his name. So what do you want to call him? Call it doesn't matter, just call him paralytic. Um, Matthew and Mark use the adjective, and paralytic isn't even a, a translation it's really a transliteration of paralutikos subpoint a paralutikos p r a i'm sorry p a r a l u t i k o s it's an adjective paralutikos meaning uh, paralyzed unable to move number 3885 that's the term that's used in both Matthew and Mark as an adjective descriptive of somebody in this condition uh, Luke, rather than using the adjective, uses a participle, a perfect passive participle, from the verb. And uh, the text for the participle is this top one here. Let's see if I get my like, yellow in the dust. Paraleluminos, that's the participle. The verb is paraluo. Our beginning Greek students are familiar with luo, all right? Paraluo is a compound. Paraluo is where we get our word paralyzed. In fact, it's not even a translation. It's just brought across from the Greek into the English and coined as an English word. Paraluo. All right. And um, by stressing the perfect passive participle, Luke, the doctor, is stressing the permanent condition of this. In other words, this is we don't know what happened to this man. Was he born this way? Was it an accident? Did he fall off his horse? What, what was he doing? Say we don't know. But whatever it was, it has been done to him, and he is now facing these ongoing consequences. All right, that's perfect passive participle. Something has been done in the past with present, ongoing, continuing results. When we draw out the, the participle, that's how we draw it. It's a point in the past. With present ongoing results, it's like by grace you have been saved. All right, it happened in the past with present ongoing eternal results. You are presently a having been saved one. You are eternally saved. That's the perfect passive participle. And so Luke is, ver- is uh, stressing the permanency of his condition and the fact that there, in medical terms, there's no hope for it. Even to this day, we spend millions and billions investigating spinal cord injuries and everything else. And and every time, you know, there's another article that comes out, oh, we're on the verge of this great discovery. See, and typically those articles come out right when we're on the verge of uh, an increased funding request. (laughs) Right. (laughs) So we're this close. And so, you know, they go back and get more funding and they get more grants and other things. And then that funds the next year's worth of research. All right. Color me skeptical. Now, in fact, I've been doing some work with uh, Christopher and Dana Reeve Paralysis Resource Center. And um, as far as how many paralyzed people do we have in our country right now with total or partial paralysis, either paraplegic, quadriplegic, or some other form of limited mobility, they say, well, it's difficult to obtain an estimate. Of the total number of paralysis victims, I've seen everything as low as 200,000 up to 2.5 million, depending on how you define paralysis or partial paralysis and so forth. Um, Paralysis today is caused by spinal cord injury, brain injury, multiple sclerosis, cerebral palsy. I can't even pronounce some of these other ones. Amyotrophic lateral sclerosis, spina bifida, stroke, transverse myelitis, post-polio syndrome, such as uh, Joyce Mansell, right, with... uh, post polio uh certain atoxias and certain muscular dystrophies in other words there's scads of different reasons which is part of why they have a hard time tracking some of the numbers because you know each different injury or each different uh, group pretty much tries to uh, puff their own numbers up and increase their own funding kind of thing but anyway even if it is two and a half million out of a population of 300 million that's not that many to tell you the truth All right. Anyway, that's paralysis. But the issue here is not the paralysis any more than the issue was the leprosy from last week. Any more than the issue is blindness and the man born blind. Okay. Whatever the sickness is, whatever the infirmity is, it's a temporal life detail. The reality is faith in Christ producing eternal life. All right. And Christ is going to turn the focus from physical healing to the forgiveness of sins. So let's not get lost in the affliction. See, I get sidetracked by the paralysis because it really is 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 healing a lame man. Is that any more miraculous than healing a blind man or is that any less miraculous than healing a leper? See, or is that any less miraculous than raising the dead when he tells Lazarus to come forth from the tomb and so forth? Every one of these is, in fact, beyond human capacity. This is a divine work of power. This is a testimony to his uh, his mission. See, and it should be a spark to wake up and listen to the message that he has to say. Point four, in the presence of these critical observers, Jesus turned the focus from physical healing to the forgiveness of sins. All three gospel records highlight the verb afiemi. From Matthew 9.2 to Mark 2.5 to Luke 5.20. They bring this man in so he can be healed. And the first thing Jesus says to him is, your sins are forgiven. All right, All three gospels record that. Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Keeping in mind, of course, that neither Matthew nor Mark nor Luke were actually in the room at the time. <laughs> in fact, we're about to get to the call of Matthew. That's coming up here later on in, in uh, I think it's the next event, isn't it? The call of Matthew is number 10. Yeah, so that's our next event in the uh, Galilean ministry. Mark and Luke, of course, weren't even disciples. But the issue gets turned from healing to the forgiveness of sin. The verb is aphiemi, A-P-H-I-E-M-I, number 863. Aphiemi, number 863. Uh, Greek students aren't going to get this verb anytime soon. The me verbs are practically at the very end of your grammar. They're going to show up in probably lesson 40 or 41 or something towards the end of your first year. All right. To uh, let go, ultimately... Um, when you realize that um, a lot of times lack of forgiveness is, is simply the mental attitude that won't let something go because you've been offended, you've been insulted, you've been hurt in some way, your feelings have been hurt, you feel slighted, and your pride won't let it go. You're going to continue to hold it against the person. You're going to continue to think poorly of them and plot your revenge and figure out, well, now how can I hurt them because they've hurt me? See, ultimately, or at least lexically, forgiveness is defined as a letting go. Let it go. Where you are going to totally waive any future claim of retribution, any future claim of of hurt, any, you're going to release any uh, any um, claim that you have for any kind of redress whatsoever. That's what forgiveness is about. And with a with a divine viewpoint, any believer can forgive anything because any believer can realize that Christ paid for it all, and we're not the standard anyway. Why am I holding something uh, against somebody's account when I'm not the one that keeps the books anyway? God the Father already released those because he put the penalty for those sins on Jesus Christ. And if he has forgiven, why why do I still hold hold it against somebody for whatever it is they've done? Why do I put myself in that position? My own pride does that, see? It's also used to release from legal or moral obligation or consequence. And some of these are are very well-known parables. I give them to you here. Uh, Matthew 18, let's turn over there. Because this... Uh, it doesn't really deal with sins necessarily, but it helps us. I think it's pretty vivid and it helps us to illustrate and understand what forgiveness really is. Matthew eighteen twenty-seven and 32. See, this is all about forgiveness. In verse 21, Peter came and said to him, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times. <laughs> and Jesus said to him, well hope it's more than that, Peter. I've already forgiven you about a hundred times. <laughs> if we were limited to seven, Peter, you'd have, been, you'd have been fried a long time ago. No. Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. In other words, don't even count. You can't count that high. Don't keep track. And uh, he teaches with this parable about a king and settling accounts with his slaves. And here's this slave who owed him 10,000 talents. All right, 10,000 talents. It says here a talent was worth more than 15 years' wages. So figure what you could earn in a year. Figure what you can earn over the next 15 years. And then it's 10,000 times that. All right, so do you, how soon do you think he can pay that off? <laughs> in other words, it's impossible. Human beings cannot possibly... Pay the debt that, uh, that we owe. Human beings can't possibly earn salvation. Since he did not have the means to repay, his Lord commanded him to be sold along with his wife and children all that he had and repayments to be made. So the slave fell to the ground, prostrated himself before him, saying, have patience with me and I will repay you everything. Well, gee, that's in about 15, you know, 150,000 years. <laughs> Roughly the next 3,000 lifespans. You're not going to pay this back. You couldn't if you want to. The Lord of that slave felt compassion and released him and forgave him the debt. And I like the way that that text includes both release, the, the English word release, in terms of released from slavery, but then also forgave him, which is also a release word, because released him from the obligation to pay what he legitimately owed. All right. Released his debt. And, uh, and that's what we do when we forgive. We're just releasing the person, saying, that's it. You don't have to make it up to me. You don't have to. And see, forgiveness is not conditional upon apologies. Whether or not the other person apologizes is irrelevant to what your mental attitude is, whether you can release them in your own mental attitude from any obligation. They can't repay it back anyway. Christ paid for it. And uh, then we know how this goes. Um, he's forgiven, but then he turns right around and he grabs one of his fellow slaves who owed him 100 denarii, and, you know, the, the, the ratio between the two is so extreme that it's, it, it's really making the point here, and, uh, you know, it would be like being $30 billion in debt, and then your neighbor owes you, you know, 25 cents or something. Seized him and began to choke him, saying, pay back what you owe. See, that's where you think you're entitled to something. You think you've earned something. You deserve something. They owe you. Okay? That whole attitude of they owe you is the direct opposite and the enemy of the mental attitude of forgiveness. Because forgiveness is the attitude of let it go. But this attitude of, well, you owe me. Okay? Because you've hurt me. You've offended me. You've hurt my feelings. You've done whatever. You owe me. I'm going to make you pay. No, forgiveness just says let that go. All right, then, uh, so we're familiar with this. It's used again, off is used again in verse 32, where once the, the Lord finds out about it, he summons him and says, You wicked, lazy slave, or you wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me, should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave. See, and that ought to be, our own forgiveness ought to be the greatest motivator for evangelism. We ought to be able to go forth with the gospel message because we've been forgiven of everything. And we ought to be able to have that kind of a hard attitude. All right. Over in Luke, then Luke seven. So hopefully that parable then is is very vivid and will remind us of what forgiveness is all about. Luke seven forty seven through fifty. Here's another one. In this sinful woman, it does not tell us that it's Mary Magdalene. Does not tell us. There's a lot of legends that grow up about this. It just doesn't tell us who this woman is, but she is a sinner. And um, here in Simon's house. And um, turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, "'Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet.'" But she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but but she, since the time I came in, has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she anointed my feet with perfume. For this reason I say to you, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins have been forgiven. And then those who were reclining at the table began to say to themselves, who is this man who, uh, who even forgives sins? See, that is the ultimate question you have to answer. And when you answer it in positive volition, you recognize this is God himself, God in the flesh. The word become flesh, dwelt among us. He is the one that's coming to provide forgiveness for our sins. When you look at it with negative volition, you get mocking and scornful and say, who does this guy think he is? And he's a, a blasphemer and only God can forgive sins. And so by our... Logic, since we've already prejudicially determined that he's a heretic, we can now assign him uh, as with the charge of blasphemy. See, we'll talk about that blasphemy here in a moment. Because it's true if it was anybody else but God. (laughs) All right, if you or I started to get up there and claim to be God and claim to forgive sins as God, well, then that would be blasphemy because we're not God. But since Jesus is God, it's not blasphemy. It's true, right? Right? Was that old Texas expression, it's not bragging if you can do it? So, something like that. Okay. It's not bragging if it's, if it's true. Yeah, it's not bragging if it's true. All right. You know, well, that's the case with Christ and his claims to deity. That's not blasphemy. It'd be blasphemy for any, any other human being on the planet, but not for him. Because he really is the God-man. All right. So it's not blasphemy. Uh, the last example, well, first 1 John 9 we we're familiar with that. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to afiemi our sins, forgive us our sins, and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He has totally released us from any uh, further obligation or judgment by virtue of the fact that that payment has been made by Jesus Christ on the cross. Of course, that's temporal forgiveness as opposed to the positional eternal forgiveness we receive at the moment of our salvation. All right. Sub point A, the man's paralysis was likely divine discipline for his sins. The man's paralysis was likely divine discipline for his sins. Quite common. And I think given the emphasis on the forgiveness of sins at this point, it's quite telling. Psalm 103.3, Isaiah 19.22, so many other passages where God used sickness as a manifestation of divine discipline. We've seen a number of other episodes already. Another life of David, life of Christ, life of Jacob. Other cases where sickness was utilized. Miriam and Aaron rebelled against Moses and God struck Miriam there with leprosy. Other cases where the sickness was a direct application of divine discipline. King Uzziah when they got prideful. Leprosy. Alright. Psalm 103 and verse 3. Bless the Lord, O oh my soul, and all that is within me. Bless His holy name. Bless the Lord, O oh my soul, and forget none of His benefits. Who pardons all your iniquities, who heals all your diseases. Interesting the way those two items are paired up in that verse, because that's exactly what we're dealing with here and with this paralytic. Your sins are forgiven, now your body is healed. Alright? Isaiah 19 and verse 22 And we want to also be clear on this. We don't believe that every sickness is divine discipline. All right. I'm not feeling that great today myself. Does that mean I'm under divine discipline? Well, it might just be I've got a fallen body and I live in a fallen world. Maybe I am under divine discipline. I have to search my heart and make sure that's not the case. Um, Isaiah 19.22, the Lord will strike Egypt, striking but healing. How do you strike but heal? You strike but heal when you're using the strike, when you're using the sickness as the discipline that prompts the repentance that then brings the healing once the lesson's been learned. The Lord will strike Egypt, striking but healing, so they will return to the Lord and he will respond to them and will heal them. See, divine discipline is never designed to just simply be, you know, some sick, twisted perverted, kind of demented, God wants to make you hurt kind of thing. No, it always has a purpose. It's designed to instruct. It's designed to humble, to repent, to wake us up. See, why was Nebuchadnezzar struck with uh, being an animal for seven years? Why was he walking around eating grass and, and, you know, hanging out in the backyard like a donkey? Well, it was designed to teach him. It was designed to humble him, to instruct him. And when he learned the lesson, it, his uh, healing then was, uh, was granted. So these things are always instructive. He will respond to them. And will heal them. And that's likely the case here. This paralysis was likely divine discipline for his sins, whatever the case. Alright? We don't know what those sins were. None of our business between him and the Lord, and the Lord just forgave him. Alright? Healing a man under divine discipline might be viewed as a work contrary to God's will. Healing a man under divine discipline might be viewed as a work contrary to God's will. just throwing this out for you to chew on. Think about it. How many of our prayer meetings are we praying for this person to be healed, that person to be healed? What if it's not God's will for that person to be healed? What if that person's under divine discipline? Are we contradicting God's will in our desires? What if that person needs to learn some lessons and he's not learning those lessons yet? Say, we've got to start focusing on what the lessons are to be learned throughout the testing. Why do we have this treasure in earth and vessels? How can we learn that the surpassing value of the grace is in God and not ourselves? What, what is the purpose for the testing? What is the purpose for the discipline? Or whatever other reason the sickness is there. Numbers chapter 12, as I mentioned, Miriam was under divine judgment. And uh, Moses is crying out for her to be healed. The anger of the Lord burned against them, and he departed. But when the cloud had withdrawn from over the tent, behold, Miriam was leprous as white as snow. And Aaron turned toward Miriam, behold, she was leprous. Then Aaron said to Moses, O my Lord, I beg you do not account this sin to us, in which we have acted foolishly and in which we have sinned. See, at least Aaron knew how to confess, right? Oh, do not let her be like one dead, whose flesh is half eaten away when he comes from his mother's womb. Moses cried out to the Lord saying, oh, God, heal her, I pray. But now God just blasted her with leprosy. And Moses is saying, heal her of this. Notice what the Lord says. The Lord says to Moses, if her father had but spit in her face, would she not bear her shame for seven days? Let her be shut up for seven days outside the camp and afterwards she may be received again. You see, this punishment has to run its course. This sickness has to accomplish the reason why it was sent. All right? And that's true for everything he allows in our life. Every health test, financial test, everything we're faced with. Rather than just simply pray, oh, take it away. I want my life to be problem free. How about if I learn what I'm supposed to learn through the process of this test and then once the lesson's learned, then you can remove those circumstances that were designed to teach me these things. And so that's what happened. Miriam was shut up outside the camp for seven days and the people did not move on until Miriam was received again. So rather than, you know, just simply praying for it to be removed, let's pray that while the test is still ongoing, we can learn the lessons we're supposed to learn. We can have the we can have the mental attitude adjustment that this this uh, uh, test or circumstance was designed to promote. That through this event, we can be transformed in the manner that he wants us to be, to be shaped, to be formed, to be fashioned. All right? Because in quite a number of our tests, that's the only way we're going to be shaped, formed, and fashioned. You know, if everything was all problem-free in a flowery bed of ease, then what would we ever learn? We'd be the most pathetic believers imaginable because we would never learn how to trust in God for anything. Because we wouldn't have any reason to. We'd have no problems. Everything would be great. At least we think it'd be great. Now, this could be viewed as a work contrary to God's will. In other words, if all he did was just simply heal the guy and say, all right, you're better now, go home. And the guy was still living in a sin problem. The guy was still uh, bent and determined to continue on and whatever else was going on. What kind of testimony would that be? What accusations could the adversary make? Under those circumstances, if the father is the one who sent this sickness, if the father is the one that paralyzed this guy and the son just healed him. What could the adversary then say that the son's not doing something in agreement with the father, that the father, that the son, there's disagreement between the father and the son, that the son is acting contrary to the father's will. Okay, could that be an accusation? May not be a legitimate one, but it could be made right. The forgiveness of sins is vital prior to the physical healing as a public witness to the critical eyes. Let's keep in mind who these observers are, these Pharisees and scribes that are right here to witness this event. By the way, they were also on hand for a number of those other examples we saw as well, the sinful woman and the the anointing of his feet and so forth. Some of the the, uh, adversarial critics were there as well. Forgiveness of sins is vital prior to the physical healing as a public witness to the critical eyes. There's more at work here than just simply the human realm. The adversary could claim that uh, Christ was working contrary to the Father's will. The Father sent the sickness; the Son healed it. And the adversary could say, "See, it's not wrong to to uh, do something separate from the Father." That's what the adversary has been doing ever since the beginning. When uh, the father laid out his will, the adversary said, nope, I got my own will. Here's five of them. I want to do this. I want to do that. I want to do these other things. It's all about the angelic conflict. All centers around Satan's claim that there can be other wills contrary to the father's will that are just as valid, that are just as right. That he has every right to set himself up as God. All right. And if Jesus was to depart from the will of the Father, even once, then the adversary could point to that and say, see, I wasn't wrong when I departed from the Father. Alright? I've given you these scriptures before, but it's been a while. First Timothy 3.16, the mystery of godliness. This wonderful hymn that Paul wrote that um, ought to be... Our testimony as believers in Christ. By common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. He who was revealed in the flesh was vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels. That's what I'm keying in on this morning, seen by angels. Proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world and the cosmos, taken up in glory. That's our gospel. That's Jesus Christ, the word made flesh. But it was not only in the the realm of human beings. "Seen by angels," it says, that his life and ministry, what we're spending this time to, to study in the life of Christ's ministry, was not only observed in the human realm, but was also instructive in the angelic realm. seen by angels." First Corinthians 2:8, another text that addresses the angelic involvement in our Lord's incarnation. It says, yet we do speak wisdom, it says in verse 6, among those who are mature, a wisdom, however, not of this age, nor of the rulers of this age who are passing away. The fallen angels that are presently ruling this fallen cosmos. But we speak God's wisdom in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God predestined before the ages to our glory. The wisdom which none of the rulers of this age has understood, for if they had understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. All right the role of Satan and his minions the adversary in motivating the Jews and the Romans to bring about the physical death of our Lord Jesus Christ upon the cross. Let's not lose track of the fact that these demons are watching. These fallen angels are watching. He's cast a number of them out already. We've seen there will be more to come. But even beyond those that he casts out, how about those that he allows to continue to work in the hearts of those surrounding him? Judas Iscariot himself is going to be possessed. See, has to happen. So we'll deal more with that as well. But let's recognize that every miracle Jesus does, he does according to the will of the Father. And healing this paralytic is the same way. But this paralytic has a sin problem. This paralytic has to realize that he has to be forgiven and he has to then move on in that forgiveness. See, it's like you and I, we can't keep beating ourselves up over a sin problem. We have to embrace the forgiveness we received in Christ. We need to confess whatever needs to be confessed and move on if all we're going to do is just beat ourselves up in guilt and all kinds of shame and other things, just dragging sin around forever, that's not the abundant life that Jesus Christ came to provide. And so this forgiveness of sins is vital. This man now has to go forth and walk in the newness of life, knowing that his sins have been forgiven, knowing that, that uh, the divine discipline did what it was supposed to do. See? And we know that it's already been humbling him because he's got the faith to say, take me in there to that man. Take me in there to get healed. Say, and his friends are taking him in there, even lowering him down through the roof. All right. Now the logic of a fortiori is inescapable. Point five: the logic of a fortiori is inescapable. This "which is easier" argument. The technical term from the Latin is a fortiori, from the stronger you can do the harder, then it stands to reason that you can do the simpler. Right? It's found in all three Gospels. Matthew 9, 5, Mark 2, 9, Luke 5, When Jesus says, which is more difficult? The logic of all 40 or is an escape. And we'll have to close with this because we're at the top of our hour. When he said, your sins are forgiven, and all the Pharisees go, Right? Blasphemy. Okay? But it's instructive. Jesus says, why are you all warped up about this? Say, which is harder? Which is easier? And by doing the harder, you're going to know that the easier likewise has been done. It is the external testimony that if I can do this, then I certainly can do this. All right? The logic, verse 5, which is easier? And again, I I think even the fact that they didn't verbalize any of this. They were saying it to themselves. This fellow blasphemes. This fellow, you know, this fellow. Imagine calling the Lord this fellow. Uh, Has that one come up? You've been doing the the names of God in the prayer meetings. This fellow, that hasn't come up at all? Why not? That's that's in the Bible. This fellow, we can close our prayers in the name of this fellow. In Jesus' name. Um, And knowing their thoughts, not because he's exercising omniscience, but because he's a prophet. The Holy Spirit is bearing witness to his human spirit. This is what they're thinking. Why are you thinking evil in your hearts? Now, now when they're thinking this, and the prophet says, why are you thinking this? What does that tell them? (laughs) Oops, this guy reads my mind. This guy knows what's in my heart and scripture says only god looks upon the heart right just like scripture says only god can forgive sins now these guys have had two witnesses to the fact that this is god standing before them because he has authority to uh, to forgive sins and he sees what's in their heart okay which is easier to say your sins are forgiven or to say get up and walk okay the easier one is to say your sins are forgiven why is that easier yeah, how do you know? You can't prove it one way or the other, right? No human being looking at them can, can just look at them and know whether it happened or not. See, it's a great, it's a great gig if you're going to be a phony, if you're going to be some kind of a charlatan, you can just start doing this stuff and no one can validate that you're doing any of it, right? Okay. But when you start to say, rise up and walk, well, that's a lot harder because then the guy better do it or you're exposed immediately as the, the fraud that you are, okay? And so you can't escape the logic. Obviously, it's harder to say, It's harder in in terms of a public performance to say, get up and walk, because then you've got to deliver the goods immediately, right? And, of course, these Pharisees can't do either. (laughs) They can't pronounce anybody's sins as being forgiven, and they they, they haven't healed anybody. See, what miracles have they been doing? None. And so uh, he says, so that you may know. That the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. In other words, this whole miracle was designed to be an object lesson. It was designed to be to make it crystal clear that they were looking at the Son of God, the Son of Man, Son of God, and that they are now without excuse saying Rise up, take up your pallet and walk. And so since that was done, what does that then prove? It proves that when he says your sins are forgiven, that your sins are forgiven. It proves that this is God Himself standing in their midst. See, man's sins are forgiven. All right, uh, you can do homework uh, Romans eight thirty two on your own for the A forty logic, and uh, show me. I guess we'll talk about it tonight or maybe next week on uh, the A forty logic of Romans eight thirty two. If you're not familiar with that, get familiar with it because it is a wonderful confidence builder and uh, encouragement for believers in Christ. Father, thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you for this uh, time together. Thank you for supplying the uh, physical health and strength to get through the uh, entire message. And uh, we just simply pray that some of this made sense. And uh, Father, it will be a blessing to the believers that are here to be edified. We thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.